discipleship, and it is a privilege to stand before you here today to bring God's Word. And let me just say uh, in front of everybody that it is a privilege to work with so many wonderful musicians on the praise team that can do this without me. Uh, I am very, very proud to uh, be there, be the pastor over that area. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. There are a lot of believers who feel like something has never quite clicked in their walk with God. They, they read promises in Scripture and wonder why they can't always see those promises at work in their own lives. And it's always amazed me how in my own life, how often I have prayed and, and pleaded with God to move in some mighty way. And while doing so, I find that I feel like I'm waiting on God. But when I stop and think about it, when I really dig in and let God speak to me, more often than not, the reason my prayers haven't been answered is not because, uh, it was not because I was waiting on God. It was because God was waiting on me to do what I already knew to do. Something he'd already instructed me to do. I just hadn't given in yet. We're going to talk about that today. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 19, begin with verse 16. We'll go through verse 22. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Let's pray. Father, I just praise you for the power of your word, God, and thank you for the privilege of being able to stand before your people to um, proclaim it. And God, I pray that you would speak to all of us today, speak to myself included, that you would make wise the foolishness that's been prepared, God, that if anything is out of your will, that you would change it in the moment, God, so that the words that I speak today are only words ordained by you, that they may impact the lives of all those who are gathered here today. In the name I pray, amen. You may be seated. We call this story the rich young ruler. We get that description as a composite of information from the different Gospels. Matthew tells us uh, he was young. Matthew and Mark both say that he had many possessions. Luke calls him an extremely wealthy ruler. As we look at the picture of this man and his question to Jesus, it's possible that this is a man who had everything he could ever want out of life, but he knew deep down that he still lacked something, something very important, eternal life. He thinks he's done all the right things, but he knows he's missing something. He's seeking to fill a void in his life that he doesn't understand. And somehow, some way, whether he's asked around or maybe he's seen Jesus at work somewhere else, he decides that Jesus is the one he needs to go to to get his answer. He finds his way to the source. And before we even get into the sermon today, I want to tell you, if you're in a place where you feel like you're missing something, 
and you don't know what it is. It's no accident that you're here today. Somehow, some way, you've come here for an answer, and I want you to know that you found the source. This is the source. And hopefully today, God will tell you clearly what you're missing. Jesus told the man clearly three things. I want to talk about those three things. The first thing he told him to do was to admit his own unrighteousness. We see this in verses 17 through 20, where Jesus first asks him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments, and I won't read all those commandments again. But when we look closer at the man's question, we find that there's some weight in the words that he's spoken. Interestingly, Matthew phrases the question posed to Jesus differently than in Mark or Luke, where in Mark and Luke it's recorded that a good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And here it's, uh, what good thing must I do? We shouldn't concern ourselves too much with the slight variation uh, in wording from gospel to gospel. Each of these writers were writing, uh, had their own style of writing, and were writing to different audiences for different purposes. Um, and so we can say, you know, Mark and Luke were writing more to a Gentile audience, and, and whereas Mark, Matthew was writing to more of a Jewish audience, and, and, and Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke wanted to sort of emphasize the question of Jesus' goodness to the Gentiles, whereas Matthew wanted to draw attention to a works-based idea of what salvation means. But I do want to talk a little bit about this use of good. Because whether it appears in front of teacher or in front of thing or works, it remains in each account and remains the exact same word. The word itself in this passage carries a moral weight to it. It's not quite the same word we find for holy, but it is related to that word. It's a sense of rightness. It's a sense of honor as recognized objectively by human standards. Okay, So that would be the difference between holiness and rightness, human standards versus godly standards. Um, so Jesus confronts the man's standard of righteousness here. His response to the man becomes a statement that even by the standards and observations of human morality, humanity still could not measure up, and that God alone is morally good by all standards, human and divine. And so to emphasize this point, Jesus challenges the man with the commandments, divinely given as an objective standard of goodness, goodness to humanity yet impossible to live by as a test by the Old Testament Scripture itself. We see this as a, a feature of the gospel, but even the Old Testament says that the, uh, the law, the, the, the commandments are impossible to live by. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. But this man does not admit his failures. He doesn't confess his sin. In fact, just the opposite. He says, I've done it all. I've got this. I'm good. He had good intentions. In fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us that he ran to Jesus to get his answer. He had something heavy on his mind. He had this nagging sense that something was wrong in his life, and he needed this answer. He needed it right then, but he had a false sense of his own self-righteousness. And either he was unable to see it, 
are unable or unwilling to admit it. And much of this man's problems could have been resolved if he'd simply agreed with Jesus' leading question. Why are you asking me about what is good? There are a lot of good intentions out in the world. And a whole lot of people who know there's something missing in their lives. They move from one thing to the next, one vice to another, one job to another, one religion to another. And even in church, we find that there are people who can't seem to stay at one church for more than a couple of years before they become dissatisfied and start looking for somewhere else to go. And it all stems from having a skewed view of self-righteousness. These are the people who always seem to be uh, looking for another rule to follow. They claim to be strict followers of the Bible, yet they miss the important thing. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Craig talked about uh, the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And to love your neighbor as yourself means that you give and do for your neighbor in a way, in the way that you want to be treated. In order to do that, you have to do it before giving and doing for yourself because that's how you would want to be treated so in the hierarchy of what's important in life it should be God others and self but the person who has a skewed view of their own self-righteousness puts themselves and their own righteousness above God and above others these are the people who spend all their time trying to abide by all the rules they find in the Bible and they never stop to actually do the will of God This is the very definition of legalism in in that the rules of righteousness replace God and God gets pushed to the side. In In the academic world, of church theology seminary world there there is a a a a gathering called ets evangelical theological society and this is where all the phds and the wannabe phds who are doing research in theology and trying to further our understanding about god and about scripture well they they will come together and they will gather together and they'll present some of their research to one another in the form of papers so they'll present a paper in front of a group of uh of peers other phds other want to be PhDs, and in order to get their research approved as being accurate. So these others can ask questions. If they find that they're incorrect, they can even go home and write their own paper to refute the one that they heard. Um, this is the world of academia. One of my professors said that one time he was at, uh, at this ETS, and there was a PhD student who was um, presenting a paper and his paper was refuting a, uh, another position written by a well-known theologian uh, at the time. Um, and uh, this Ph.D. student disagreed with the theologian. So he was presenting his paper on uh, why he disagreed. So he wraps up, and it's time for the question time. And he's answering some questions, and one man in the back raised his hand. He said, um, I believe that you have misrepresented uh, this this guy's position on this issue, and the student PhD student says, "No, I, I've done all my research. I know I'm right. This is this is the right position. This is what he believes." And the guy says, "No, I I, I think you're wrong. You're wrong. Uh, this is not the position that this man holds." And it started getting a little tense, and the student is like, I, "I'm right. This is what the man said." And I disagree with him. And so the man in the back stands up. 
And he says, young man, I wrote that paper. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. We need to be careful that we don't get so busy trying to be right about our righteousness that we fail to recognize the author of our righteousness when he tries to speak into our lives. What must we do to obtain eternal life? The biggest and most important step is to confess our own unrighteousness and our own inability to save ourselves and cling to the one and the only one who can truly be called good as the source of our righteousness. And I'm going to do something a little bit different because you're used to hearing a gospel presentation at the end of the sermon. I'm going to give it to you right now. Because the source of true righteousness is Jesus and Jesus only. There are none who are righteous. Not a single one of us can measure up to God's standard. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. If you're one of those never satisfied, always looking for something, always trying to follow the rules of righteousness, but never filling that hole in your heart, because your righteousness is not good enough and can never be. Today, you need to admit your own unrighteousness and inability to save yourself. Believe what the Bible says about Jesus dying for you to repay the penalty for your sins so that through him you might be seen as righteous before God and confess him today as your Lord and Savior. Second thing, and as we move forward... Um, we're going to be sort of aiming towards those of us who have already given our lives to Christ. Second thing we find in verse 21, the beginning, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. What we need to take away from this passage is not that Jesus had a problem with the man's wealth, but that wealth and prosperity was the most important thing in the man's life. It was his idol. Jesus goes on in the following verses to talk about just how strong and idle money can become. But don't take Jesus' instructions to this young man to mean Jesus expects everyone to sell everything they own before becoming a believer. That's not the point. The point is he needed to submit the most important thing his life in his life to Jesus. He needs to give up his idols. Craig gets to pick on his kids all the time, so I'm going to get to pick on one of mine today. When Sarah was about eight or so, where is she? Are you over here? There you are. Sarah was about eight or so. She went through this phase where she didn't want to clean her room. I know what I'm talking about. She still doesn't want to clean her room, but she, she does it now. This, this was an issue where uh, we, we would send her in the room to clean it, and she would just go in there and play. She didn't, she didn't even try. She didn't want to try. We threatened her. We, we threatened her with, uh, with, the, with the paddling. We threatened her with grounding. We threatened to take away all her stuff. We even threatened to pack up her room in the boxes and move it out. <laughs> and then we realized if we do that, we're just cleaning her room for her. <laughs> so after talking about it and trying to figure out what in the world was the most important thing that we could take away from her, we realized what it was staring us right in the face the whole time. It was her room. So we grounded her from her room. We told her to pack some clothes. <laughs> she took her pillow and a stuffed animal to the guest room. 
And that's where she would have to live until her room was clean, and we locked her room door. And the only way she could go into her room was if she was ready to start cleaning. And if she was uh, found playing during those moments, then we would lock the door for the rest of the day, and she couldn't try again until the next day. Those were the rules. That first night was horrible. She did not. We found it. We found the most important thing to her. She, she wailed and wailed and wailed in that guest room. She did not want to be there. She wanted to be in her room. Next morning after breakfast, she asked if she could go clean her room. By lunch, it was clean. <laughs> we found the most important thing. In order to get obedience, we had to take it away. Jesus is identifying the biggest idol in the man's life. He points it out and tells him to give it up. He's not the only person he did this to. When he called Peter, James, and John, he asked them to give up a career in the family fishing business. When Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, uh, Matthew was at work at his tax booth, and the Bible says he got up and left everything behind and followed Jesus. Jesus is telling this man that if he wants to follow him, he has to be willing to give up the most important things in his life. In other words, in order to follow Jesus successfully, he has to make Jesus the most important thing in his life. He has to give up his biggest idols and focus on Jesus instead. Those of us in this room who have given our lives to Christ know that when Jesus called us, he also asked us to let go of things that we might hold on to as more important than him. Some salvation stories include uh, more extreme circumstances of having to give up substance abuse or an immoral lifestyle. There's the workaholic who never had time for God, the skeptic who had to let go of a false belief. But in every case, the second thing God required of us after we've confessed unrighteousness is to give up whatever idol we had in our lives that stood between us and him. And once having dealt with that first idol, here's what God does. God continues to grow us and sanctify us by systematically revealing other idols and requiring us to let them go. And an idol in our lives might be something we don't expect, but it will always be something that, we would, give, uh, that would give us pause if Jesus were to ask us to give up. For Peter, James, and John, it was fishing and family. For Matthew, it was a job and financial security. For Paul, it was a blossoming career and a reputation. For Moses, it was his identity. For Abraham, it was his son. T.W. Hunt describes in his book, The Mind of Christ, how he came to the realization that there were things in his life that he tried to keep control over and had never given complete control over to God. And so in trying to uh, develop a mind that was continually seeking after Christ, he made lists of these things that he had to give 100% over to God. And on that list, he realized, as he was making this list, he realized that he had been reserving a sense of control over the livelihood and protection of his family. 
And he knew that if he wanted to take the next step in his faith, he had to systematically identify all his control issues and give them to Christ. And that included his family. And he said, releasing, saying the prayer, God, I release my daughter into your control, into your protection. He said doing that for his family was the mo- one of the most difficult things he'd ever had to do, he ever had to do in his faith. Letting go of his feeling of control and protection for his family. It seems harsh to think that our family, uh, to think of our family and, and, and that it could become an idol before God, but if God asked you to give up your family in order to follow him, would you? That's what he asked of Abraham. That's what he asked of James and John. Scripture says that, that when James and John were called, they left the boat, and it makes a point that saying they left the boat and their father behind. In this passage that we're looking on, looking at in the, in the same time frame, in the same conversation, down a little bit further, Peter says this in verse 29, and every... Uh, um, in verse 28, 27, he, Peter says, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or far, farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit, in, inherit eternal life. In Luke chapter 9, we find the following exchange between Jesus and two of his followers who wanted to make a commitment to follow Jesus. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to him, and Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to go say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Seems harsh. But what Jesus is wanting to find out is where's the line? What's your line in the sand? How much is too much for you to give up for your faith? Have you ever asked that question before? I've been involved in ministry in some capacity for about 20 years. I've served about six churches um, on staff and probably talked to about twice that many uh, committees for other churches. And one of the questions I've learned to ask um, when talking to a community is to ask about their sacred cows. I don't always come out and say, hey, what's your sacred cow? What I'm talking about is what are the things, the programs, uh, the, the buildings, anything. It can, it can be anything. What is the, the one biggest thing that the people of the church would be willing to let the church go to ruin in order to protect? And there's almost always one, and even if the committee thinks they know what it is, they're almost always wrong. I, I'm not, 
I'm not trying to exactly find out information here. What I want to find out is if they've even thought about it before. If the church thought about it, and I want to see their reaction if they're thinking about it for the first time. And more importantly, what I, what I really want to know is if that is the kind of church that is willing to do the hard spiritual work to remove that as an idol. It's not necessarily about getting rid of the thing. It's about getting rid of it as an idol in their hearts. See what I'm saying? Once I asked that question to a committee. I forget how, how I phrased it. And the chairman of the committee says, well, I don't think we have any. One of the other guys says, well. And the chairman promptly turns on him and says, hush. True story. Jesus required the man to give up his biggest idol. He drew a line in the sand the man was unwilling to cross and challenged him to cross it anyway. So what's your line? Is there something in your life that you're unwilling to let go of or unwilling to give God control over? Is there a sacred cow in your life that you're willing to let your spiritual life fall apart in order to protect? There's always some idol that we have to deal with. Until, until we shed this sinful flesh, we're going to have to deal with this the rest of our lives. It's not really a question about whether there is one or not. The better question is, are you the kind of person who's willing to do the hard work to get rid of it? The third thing Jesus required of the man. Those last four little words in verse 21. And come, follow me. Once challenged to confess his unrighteousness and give up his idols, Jesus tells the man to follow him. This in and of itself may be uh, more of a challenge to the man than we realize. He was young. He was a ruler. He was rich. And he was probably not used to submitting and following anyone. It's quite possible he'd never done it before. And now Jesus is asking him, on top of everything else, to submit in a way that basically changed the man's self-identity completely. Submitting to Jesus would require him to leave his old life behind and become a new person. He would, he would no longer be rich. He would no longer be in control. He'd be a poor follower of Jesus, learning all over again what it means to be righteous. And learning it the right way. Jesus is telling this man... To come here. But he's out of reach. He's keeping Jesus at arm's length. And Jesus wants him to come and to go with him. Wednesday night I told you a little bit about our, our, our miniature schnauzer that we've got at home that's becoming incorrigible over the treats. But we do have this miniature schnauzer at home. And um, he's not allowed outside without a leash. Ever. Because he'll run. And it doesn't matter how affectionate he is when he's confined or, when, or how obedient he is on the leash. When he gets off that leash, he's gone. 
Sometimes he'll wait by the door and try to stick his nose through the crack so he can get free. And, you know, for a long time, I thought he was just a jerk. I thought he just wanted to run away from us. And then I started doing some research about the breed. And it comes to find out it's a trait of miniature schnauzers. And, and when I started looking uh, into uh, to owner's forums and stuff online, uh, no owner uh, who's ever had a miniature schnauzer would allow them off-leash outside. It's just, you just don't do it because they play the game. And when you say the game to someone who has had one of these dogs, they know exactly what you're talking about. Some of y'all laughing. Y'all know what I'm talking about. He knows you're there. He sees you walking close to you. And he, he'll, he, you can get maybe about this close to me, to me to Deanna to him. And he'll stop. He'll listen to you. He'll perk his ears up. He'll look at that treat real good that you're holding in your hand. He may even walk a little closer to you. Come within about three or four feet, just out of arm's reach. And the moment you make a move, he scoots back another ten feet and just looks at you. And you take a step, and he takes a step. <laughs> you take another step, and he takes another step. He's playing the game. And it's so hard to catch him when he's off leash. How many of us treat Jesus in this way? We get a little freedom. We don't want to get too far out of God's sight. So we hang around. We hang around the church. We do the churchy things. We keep a collection of Bibles on our shelves. But we stay just a little bit out of reach of God's transforming power. Things get too serious, or they get a little spiritually intense. Maybe we begin to feel the Holy Spirit tugging at our hearts for one reason or another. We run the other way. Maybe we don't come back to church the next Sunday. Maybe we give it a little time to cool off. That was a little too close. God almost caught us. We're playing the game with God. Because deep down, we have a stubbornness in our lives that doesn't want anyone, not even Jesus himself, to tell us how to live our lives. We want to keep the control, and we don't want to submit and follow him in the way that we should. What does submitting and following Jesus mean for you today? Following Jesus makes a difference in our lives. It changes you. It makes you deal with unrighteousness. It makes you deal with idols. It makes you deal with that stubborn pride that keeps you from coming to him when he calls. Submitting and following Jesus means you begin to grow in righteousness. It means when an idol rears its ugly head, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of it. It means you're willing to follow wherever he wants to take you. No questions asked. Following Jesus makes a difference. It changes you. When you look back on your life before Christ and you look at your life today, is there a difference? Because there should be. An encounter with Christ changes you. You should not be the same person you were when you got saved. 
And growing isn't just a one-time thing. This process keeps going over and over and over again. It should go for the rest of our lives. We're never too old to learn it all. We're never going to get there. We should be different today than we were last year. We should be different a year from now than we are today. Because following Christ changes you. When was the last time Jesus made a difference in your life? The young man went seeking Jesus for answers. And Jesus told him clearly what to do. Confess his unrighteousness, get rid of idols, submit to him. And the man went away sad because he was not willing to do those things. Let that sink in for a moment, okay? The answer, he, his, his question was, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus gave him the answer. And this man went away weighing the options. He was weighing what Jesus said versus eternal life. Do I really want to do this? Do I really want eternal life? He was measuring his eternal soul against whether or not he was willing to do what Jesus told him to do. Sometimes even the most well-intentioned, most on-fire believer might be asked by God to do something they're not ready to do yet. Maybe they'll get there. Maybe they just flat refuse to do what they've been told to do. I believe that every Christian will eventually be pushed to the point where they have to deal with the biggest issues in their lives that keep them from growing. Whether it's pridefully holding on to a sense of self-righteousness, refusing to give up an idol, or refusing to submit to the leadership of Christ. And those things show up in different ways for different people at different times in their lives. It may be a call to give up a lucrative job in order to enter ministry. It may be to sell everything they have and move to the mission field. It may be to leave family and friends behind to move across the country. It may be something a little less drastic. It may be a call to leadership in the church or a call to begin some kind of local outreach or maybe more simple, a call to speak to the young mother in the grocery store who's at her wit's end. Or a call to pray with a stranger who's obviously having a bad day. For some of you, it's a call for the first time to give up your unrighteousness. This young man knew who to go to. He was told what to do. But he didn't want to do it. He went away grieving. Have you ever seen a sad, miserable Christian? A sad, miserable Christian. These are Christians who have been clearly told to do something by God and have not been willing to do it. 
God has been leading them on a journey of sanctification, drawing them along, asking them to deal with issues systematically. And maybe they've been doing it for some time, uh, beginning with small things, rising through the ranks of more stubborn issues in their lives, all all to get them to grow, to become who they weren't meant to be. But eventually, eventually, we're all going to get to a point where God's going to point out one of those things that our hearts may not be willing to give up yet. We may want to hold on to them more than we want to follow Him. And if we walk away, we walk away grieving because we know what we should do. We know what He's told us to do. He's drawn a line in the sand and said, Do you trust me? Will you follow me this far? And we've looked at the line and we've turned around and said, Not today. And if he hasn't drawn that line for you before today, or you're not facing that line, he'll he'll draw it one day. Will you hang your head in shame? and walk away grieving? I believe there are some in this room that are grieving right now for this very reason. Today, you may be in a difficult place, struggling and feeling like you can barely breathe. You don't know what to do. You're looking for answers. Somehow, some way, you've come to the source. You're waiting on God to show up You're waiting on God to tell you what to do. I want to tell you today, maybe maybe you're not waiting on God. Maybe God is waiting on you. Maybe He's waiting on you to step across the line and follow Him. Is that you today? If you've never given up your unrighteousness for the first time, do it today. Begin that journey, that exciting journey of following Jesus wherever he takes you. Yeah, sometimes it's going to hurt. Sometimes the things he's going to ask you to do are going to be tough. But it's the answer to eternal life. It's the answer. And maybe, maybe you've got idols you've been holding on to that God's told you to get rid of and you haven't been really willing to do it yet. Maybe he's telling you to go and do something, to come and follow him and you're just staying out of arm's reach, playing a game. God's not playing a game. He knows what you should be and who you could become. And if you're willing and you'll come and follow him, he'll do some amazing things in your life. Are you willing to do that today? Let's bow our heads. Father, we just come to you humbly, asking you to just move amongst us, God. And I know, I know there are those here who are grieving today because you've called them one step further than they're willing to go. But God, I pray that today that they would look to you and not to anything else 
that they'd give up whatever needs to be given up, that they'd make you the focus of their lives, that they'd step across the line and follow you. God, move in the hearts of the people who are here today, God, and have your will. In name I pray, amen. Would you please stand? There's a place where mercy 